Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan, and today on The Detail... Back in 2008, they estimated one in six adults had a hazardous drinking pattern. That's now one in five. Alcohol, for all its benefits, causes or contributes to significant harm in this country. Various attempts have been made to put a dollar figure on this, with one recent report suggesting it could be up to $7.8 billion every year. But last week, Chloe Swarbrick's alcohol harm minimisation bill was drawn from the biscuit tin. This is a bill that could fundamentally change how local authorities regulate booze and would mark a galactic shift in the relationship between alcohol and sport. The Green Party's Chloe Swarbrick says her alcohol harm minimisation amendment bill seeks to do two things. The first is remove the special appeals process for local alcohol policies. The second part of the bill uh, is implementing a few of the recommendations from the 2014 Ministerial Forum uh, on sports and alcohol, uh, particularly in the space of ending uh, sports advertising and sponsorship for broadcast sports. Today on the programme, I sit down with Swarbrick and Dylan Firth from the Alcohol Beverages Council to learn about what this bill actually entails, what the evidence base is, what the impact on community sports organisations might be, and what the alcohol industry in this country thinks of it all. So it does two things. Um, The first is removing what's called the special appeals process for uh, local alcohol policies. So the Sale and Supply of Alcohol Act in 2012 was set up ostensibly to empower local authorities, those are councils around the country, to set up these local alcohol policies, uh, which set things like, you know, how many bottle shops can pop up, opening times and all the rest. Many of our large councils, Hamilton, Auckland, Christchurch, haven't been able to put these LAPs or local alcohol policies in place, primarily because of these special appeals processes, which 86% of them taken by the supermarkets in particular, uh, and a range of bottle shops, obviously, with deeply vested interests there. Uh, That obviously is a prevention of local democracy coming into effect with something which is an anomaly that doesn't exist for any other form of social, social harm in terms of gambling or vaping or tobacco or whatever else. The second part of the bill is implementing one of the lowest hanging fruit recommendations from a 2014 report. The new report is calling for a crackdown on alcohol sponsorship and advertising, saying at times a complete ban on advertising is needed. The forum says the link between alcohol and sports is leading young people to drink and drink heavily. Chaired by Sir Graham Lowe. They are strong recommendations. It was never going to be an easy thing to do and it's it's pointless going through and just nodding and accepting the status quo and thinking everything's OK because it's not OK. Delivered to the then national government, ignored by them and then by Labour. And uh, joining us now is the Justice Minister, Amy Adams. Good morning. Morning, Guyon. Do you accept the link between exposure to alcohol advertising and young people developing harmful drinking habits? Well, look, the report says that they have clearly found that there is some evidence of that. That's their recommendation. What I've said is that we have to understand the implications of any decisions before we make them. Yes, we'll move on. Uh, Which recommended uh, for them actually getting rid entirely of alcohol advertising and sponsorship in sports. Uh, My bill tackles uh, just broadcast sports. Let's focus on each of those separately. So first, the abolishment of these special appeals. Essentially, what, what you're saying here is if a local council or a community decides that it doesn't want a liquor licence to be renewed or another liquor store to open up, that decision can be appealed 
with the cynical interpretation of that being, we'll just drag this out for as long as possible until they throw up their hands and say, fine, here's your bloody licence, mm. open up your bloody store. Is that kind of kind of it? It's even more fundamental than that. So what you're talking about there is the district licensing committee's kind of application of local alcohol policies. Uh, what we're talking about is the ability to set in place these rules to begin with. Okay. So to give you two really clear examples of where there's been an inability to do so, Auckland and Christchurch. So Auckland has been trying to implement a local alcohol policy that is widely consulted on through the community, through stakeholders and all the rest, has been trying to implement this for seven years, but has been bound up by vested interests in the court, spending over a million dollars of, if we want to talk about ratepayer dollars, that's a substantial proportion, uh, and still, as yet, has not been able to a- implement that local alcohol policy. Auckland ratepayers are on the hook for legal bills totaling a million dollars in counting as the council fights for a temporary ban on downtown bottle stores. Foodstuffs and countdown owners, Woolworths, are unhappy with proposals in the local alcohol policy, such as reduced hours and a freeze on new off-licences. Same goes for Christchurch, who also spent several years and over a million dollars before giving up. Same goes for Dunedin. The mayor of Dunedin is fed up with New Zealand's local alcohol policies. Dave Carl, who will join us, says the system we've got is a farce. It puts commercial interests before communities. The threat of these special appeals to implementation of local alcohol policies has meant that in places where they do have them in place, that we've also seen that local authorities have already watered them down to preempt any potential going through the court's processes. Dylan Firth is a board member of the Alcohol Beverages Council and Executive Director for the Brewers Association. Part of the discussion we've seen so far around the removal of the right to appeal has been that there's a narrative out there that commercial interests are the ones that are holding these up uh, and all over New Zealand, uh, and that's the reason why we don't have local alcohol policies in, in half of the territorial authorities. And I think that's completely false, really. You know, there are instances where industry has appealed through uh, retailer banners, um, uh, you know, supermarkets, etc. But I, I would say the vast majority of local alcohol policies that have gone through have gone through un, uh, unopposed uh, where submitters have said, look, you know, these are what we want. And they've found a middle ground like you should in any consultation process. Well, I mean, the, uh, reason that, the, the reason that that narrative is there is because there are local councils who have said that. I mean, the, the late Mayor of Dunedin, Dave Cullors, on record saying that the special appeals process is weighted far too heavily in favour of commercial interests. Uh, Auckland's been trying to institute its local alcohol policy for, I think it's about seven years now, and it's spent more than a million dollars while bogged down in legal proceedings. So, I mean, it's slightly disingenuous to say that there's no evidence for this. The, the local councils are the ones who are saying that. Yeah, look, I, I don't say there's no evidence for it. I, I do think that there's, I think the narrative is just slightly skewed. It's that absolutely there are people appealing this. You know, as I have highlighted before, that the Wellington local alcohol policy spent weeks, if not over a month, in the appeals process um, when it was being appealed by bodies that didn't like the fact that there were extended hours or, or things that weren't necessarily up um, to their point of view. And, and this wasn't industry being appealed. And if, in fact, the appeals process didn't exist, would have five o'clock a.m. closing in Wellington. And and so, you know, there are two sides that will have views on any position here. In the case of Auckland, um, you know, the right to appeal, you know, is something that's built into it, absolutely. But also the process that's continuing on is, is one that's being done through judicial review. So uh, actually, if you remove the right to appeal, there are still the mechanisms, uh, and as there should be in any ability to make law in New Zealand is to review that uh, through the judiciary. Uh, And so that's what process is happening at the moment. So we'd still see that in some instances, uh, and I don't necessarily think the removal of the appeals would uh, get that across the line. So is it sort of of your your opinion that 
there, there are issues in the area of the implementation of local alcohol policies and, and council's ability to, to implement those, but that this specific legislation uh, what adopts too blunt an approach or too pointed an approach that won't have the overall positive outcome. Am I, am I, am I reading you right there? Yeah, look, absolutely. And I think that there needs to be work on local alcohol policies. The devolution of decision-making around uh, hours and things that came to local councils when this act was put into place, you know, that was something that was kind of deemed to be asked for. Uh, unfortunately, there's a specific set of bits of evidence that they need to produce when making a local alcohol policy. And now it's, it's pretty difficult to always pull the right pieces of evidence to, to adhere to bits of legislation. And the way that this legislation was written probably didn't help those councils to do that. And, and what they found is in many instances, and this is where these appeals have gone through and been found you know, found wanting in some instances, is because they haven't met those requirements. Uh, and it's not necessarily the fault of anyone who's appealing them. It's actually the requirements of the Act are not being met by those implementing the rules. Back to Chloe Swarbrick. We've talked about the first element to the bill. So let's turn now to the advertising and sponsorship issues. What exactly would these do? It would implement these recommendations from this 2014 report. What's the 2014 report? The 2014 report, Ministerial Forum, as it was titled, commissioned by the former national government, was looking at the connection or the link between uh, sports in this country and alcohol, particularly through sponsorship and advertising. Uh, they came to find that inside of kind of the sporting sector as a whole back in 2014, that there was about $20 million that was being spent on alcohol advertising and sponsorship. And they also found that that kind of saturation of alcohol visibility was having the effect of not only normalising but also glamorising alcohol and alcohol consumption. That obviously feeds into our broader culture of how currently it's very normal or let alone encouraged to have a drink when you're having a good day, a bad day, just a day, um, and attempting to sever that tie, particularly with something that you know we kind of frame up as being healthy and good for society. <laughs> so it would remove the ability to advertise, uh, much like we did with tobacco back in the 1990s, uh, alcohol in sports games for particularly broadcast sport, but also for sports uniforms and for stadiums. I think that it is important to note that as with all members' bills, there are some niggly issues to work through. Um, one of those niggly issues, which is going to be really important to mull over at Select Committee, is do we consider broadcasting somebody chucking it on Facebook? Another one of the considerations that's come up in other jurisdictions that have moved towards doing things like this as well is what about zero percents? Particularly, I was going to ask you about that. There's a further on though. <laughs> yeah, particularly when those zero percents can be used as, you know, a bit of a Trojan horse for brand awareness. Exactly. For, yeah. yeah. To that point, we're going to have to do work on that. At present, it is to do with alcohol quantum and, and alcohol, but also related to the brand name and therefore what it does. So we're going to have to go into granular detail about what that means in practice. And again, I'm not going to pretend as though it's entirely perfect. No member's bill is. And I've been through this process before with the Election Access Fund bill too. Sure. I do have a bunch of sort of um, questions around hypotheticals, which I imagine mm. will have the same answer. But I do want to just put some of them to you because it Please. is quite a, kind of an interesting area. So like the Football World Cup later this year, one of the main sponsors for the Football World Cup is going to be Budweiser. 
what will that mean for overseas events that, you know, this happens all the time, yeah. all sorts of, you know, it's the Heineken Cup in the United Kingdom? Really good question. So at present in the bill, simply by virtue of the fact that a member's bill can only do so much, we do have in there a section which enables an exclusion for overseas events. Okay. Yeah. And again, um, I had the point made to me by councillors, particularly in Auckland Council, about why are we only looking at sports when we should be looking at arts and cultural events and all the rest as well. And sure, to that effect, I'd absolutely be in favour of us having a national conversation around ending alcohol advertising outright, as was recommended in the 2010 or 2011 Law Commission report. But the reality is there's only so much that a member's bill can chew off. So there is that exclusion for those international events at the moment. Uh, And were we looking to go further as a parliament, I would absolutely Mm. invite that. But I didn't want the bill to fail at the first hurdle. Sure. Back to Dylan Firth. Are you aware, like, how much does the alcohol industry spend on on advertising and sponsorship of, of sport? I don't have figures on that. In 2014, Otago University did a study into this and estimated that number of being around about $21 million. Do, do you think it would be in that kind of ballpark? Oh, look, without having to, looking at that research and, and understanding how they've pulled it together, it would be very hard to comment on that. Okay. I just, you know, you've come to an interview about a potential ban on alcohol advertising and broadcast sport and you don't know how much is spent on alcohol advertising and broadcast sport? Well, I think, you know, it's it's hard to define exactly the exactly the amount of sponsorship that goes into that is seen in the broadcast, you know. Is it there? Is it something on the field? Is it a sign in the stadium? Uh, is it something that might be, you know, when this, you know, is it Heartland Championship, you know, understanding where that is visible and then how much is spent exactly on that versus as a, part of maybe a sponsorship agreement is extremely difficult. You can look at more broadly at advertising spend, um, which there's data out there from the Foundation for Advertising Research that I think goes back to 2019 was the last time I did it, but that's not specifically in sponsorship and sport. I, I, as much as I would love to have those figures, I, I just don't think they're quantifiable in a sense that would be exact. Back to Chloe Swarbrick. Is there evidence that says doing this with regard to advertising and sponsorship will reduce alcohol-related harm. There is evidence that shows that continued exposure to alcohol through sponsorship and advertising has uh, the impact of increasing the amount that people, you know, normalise and glamorise alcohol, and particularly for our young people, normalising that consumption when they become adults. A study has found New Zealand children are exposed to up to 200 ads each hour when they watch sports on TV. And a lot of it is ads for alcohol. A lot of discussion now overseas, they're really framing it as a a child's rights issue. You know, should they be exposed to this kind of marketing as they grow up, which is going to change their relationship with alcohol and does increase the risk of them starting to drink more and starting to drink earlier. So there is evidence that shows that it has that impact in terms of evidence from other jurisdictions about reducing harm. Again, I think the kind of best parallel that you could try and come up with is the likes of tobacco advertising and sponsorship. You can't specifically pinpoint that it was the one thing that did it, but it was part of a package of interventions which said, hey, we're going to stop glamorising and normalising this thing. You've raised tobacco several times. Mm. Yeah, If we were to step back and consider what drug harm needed prioritising in New Zealand, cigarettes and tobacco would no longer be top of the list. 
it'd be booze. Um, well, tobacco, alcohol and cannabis just tend to be the substances that are brought up the most. And I think that they're of real value in comparison because you've got one that's illegal there, one that's obviously been regulated to the nines, and the other which we would rather not talk about. I, I see your point. And particularly with regard to the sponsorship element, there is a, a precedent almost with tobacco. But I would say, and I say this as an ex-smoker, hmm. I think there's a big difference between alcohol and tobacco. And I think many ex- ex-smokers would agree with this. Tobacco is a much more inherently evil product than mm. alcohol. Tobacco is a product where if, if used as directed, it kills the user. Mm. Alcohol is not like that. And conflating them in terms of intrinsic harm... Yeah, yeah alcohol this is... is a type 1 carcinogenic. And that's why we've seen the Cancer Society come out in support of the bill as sure. well. So I, I There's completely, a world of difference, though. Yeah, I completely hear your point that, um, you know, you're not... If you, I don't, don't think anybody necessarily has an inherently healthy relationship with alcohol or tobacco or any of those substances. But, Do you not think people um, can have inherently healthy relationships with alcohol? I think that we can have uh, on a spectrum a healthier, but you'll hear from different doctors that will say that, you know, one drink is harmful mm. for somebody. And it's the same kind of argument that we heard from a range of um, particularly uh, those in the health sector coming forward on cannabis regulation saying that there is no healthy level of cannabis that you could consume. Mm. I think the same goes if we're really to come at it from a first principles basis that alcohol does harm to all of your, next to all of your internal organs uh, and has that um, kind of effect of degrading them. And to that effect, that's why I'm about harm reduction. Is I don't think that we have a great world if we get rid of this thing. Mm. I don't think that we are going to be able to get rid of this thing. And I also have a kind of latitude of approach and to a certain extent, you have to regulate as best as you possibly can, not punish people, but also say, hey, look, you live in the world and you have to navigate it. So, yeah, I, I approach it from a harm reduction principle. There are a number of studies that show that advertising sponsorship is around brand recognition versus uh, getting people to drink more. I think there's a you know perception out there that it's about getting people to drink more alcohol uh, versus actually this brand is better than this brand. There's been meta studies of loads of you know loads of studies that show that here is the ability to say, well, I want to drink X beverage over X beverage um, versus you know actually trying to get more people out there. So I don't necessarily think that we agree with banning broadcast um, sport sponsorship. Uh, is going to achieve. I mean, brand recognition versus getting people to drink more, though. If we're talking about alcohol companies, we're, we're splitting gears there, Weaver, aren't we? Like, I mean, there's, there's no harm in sort of acknowledging that advertising is to get more people to buy your product, right? Like, that, that, that's the point of advertising. Well, I, I, I disagree completely uh, on the completeness of that statement. There's that there are loads of different products out there that people get to choose from, whether it's an alcohol or not. And differentiation in a market that is ultimately declining over time. You know, New Zealanders are drinking less, um, 30, 20 to 30% less than we did in the 80s. And we've seen um, our advertising spend increase, you know, hugely over that time. Um, so, you know, the correlation is not necessarily there of people trying to spend more money to get more people to drink. It's actually trying to get people to differentiate during that kind of, in that market share. Um, you know, I don't think people would be wanting to spend more money on something that isn't increasing. The point that is brought up against this is the fiscal impact that it would have on particularly grassroots level sport. Mm. The obvious point is, if something's going to happen in this area, we want to make sure that the benefit is going to outweigh the harm because there is going to be, or there will be uncertainty at least, for many 
rugby clubs, sports clubs around the country. So there's two main levers uh, that are currently available which could immediately fill that gap. And this is outlined uh, in, I believe, an Otago Public Health Policy paper by Dr Nikki Jackson, who also heads up Alcohol Health Watch. So the first um, is through a levy that Health Promotion Agency already has access to. And if you were to, say, put two cents on every can of beer that's sold, then it would fill the void immediately. The other is for the government to come up with some kind of transition fund. And again, we've done these things before in the 1990s when we looked at tobacco phasing out. And can a levy just be unilaterally levied? Uh, through the health promotion agency uh, mechanism that currently exists. So it yeah. can just do it. It, it doesn't just have do to it. get yep. buy-in from we don't need. We don't need new legislation to do it. Swarbrick's other suggestion is for the government to create a fund available to sports clubs or organisations which would compensate for this lost sponsorship and revenue. But I guess, again, it comes back to that bigger question of are we willing to accept continuing to rationalise a world and a culture in which we continue to expose particularly our young people to normalisation and glamorisation of a substance that is responsible for causing the most macro harm in our society? What do you think the best arguments against your bill are? Uh, I mean, the one that the lobby continues to throw out uh, is that they think that the reason that they spend millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars on uh, sponsorship is only for brand awareness and not to try and get people to consume more of the substance, which again, um, flies So that doesn't sound like a very good argument. No, it's not. And you must (laughs) consider arguments against your your position, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the... Is the fu- um, does the funding argument give you, not necessarily pause for thought, but... I mean, there, there is definitely salience to it. Um, and again, I think that <laughs> there's some real similarities. Again, it's not identical, um, but gambling is another area exactly. that we could talk about harm reduction. And I have for a very long time and raised this in multiple debates, particularly when um, Carmel Sepuloni was the um, Minister for Arts, Culture and Heritage, uh, that the uh, the tethering of pokey machines revenue to particularly arts and cultural um, sponsorship and community events creates a really perverse incentive for the generation of more kind of licenses, for lack of a better term, for these pokey machines. So, yeah, I I think, again, there's a range of different ways that we could go about regulating this stuff. But in a nutshell, I think that um, the argument around um, grassroots funding is one of the stronger arguments. Well, it's a systematic thing, right? And Mm. as you, I mean, I actually wanted to bring this up, the idea that there is a a dependence between community-level things, not just sport, as you say, not mm. just sport, but arts and cultural things and, and I mean, churches and, mm. and, and ch- charity organisations. Yeah, and, I and, mean, the music scene, if you want to talk about how, you know, in Thalmaki Makoto, I very strongly believe that we should have a thriving music scene that doesn't have to rely on alcohol sales, but that's not the case, uh, and that's why we have, you know, some would say a dearth of all ages events. Yeah, and that's tricky. I mean, it's tricky to get past. Because it's that, really that, tricky, that, but we can't pretend that this stuff is natural. Mm. The reason that we've ended up in this consequence or this kind of logical, if you can call it that, conclusion is because the basis or the premise of the debate has been set by those vested interests who for a very long time have captured these audiences. So to pretend that that is natural is daft. It is the consequence of different political decisions that have been made over the past few decades and different political decisions can be made. So I hope to get to a future where our our sporting events and our cultural events and our community events don't have to rely on these substances and these things that cause social harm because I think that that is a really unhelpful and unhealthy tether. 
That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders and produced by Alexia Russell. Bonnie Harrison is our associate producer. And thanks to Chloe Swarbrick and Dylan Firth. Matewa.